Well, good afternoon on an Easter Sunday. This afternoon, let's take our Bibles and turn to Romans, Romans chapter 3, and we'll read verses 24 through 31. Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 31. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yes, we establish the law. May God add a special blessing to read of his word and let us just pause for prayer prior to our study. Father God, we again, we thank you for the day that you've given to us. We thank you for the season, the opportunity we have to celebrate, to commemorate, and literally to live in victory because of what was accomplished on Calvary's tree. We thank you, Father, for the resurrection, this Sunday being that day that we can commemorate and look back and see uh, the enormous uh, challenges that were set before us, but also, Father, the enormous victory that was brought through the resurrection of the Holy Spirit raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Father, we would ask that our time together today would be fruitful. It would be uh, a time of us to really look within ourselves and Father, for you, through the Holy Spirit, to guide us, to direct us, to move us, to sanctify us in the days forward as our future is fixed because of what Jesus Christ accomplished. We pray today that our teacher would exclusively be the Holy Spirit. And now we look with anticipation to what you will do for us and through us on this day, asking these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, today, there are uh, there's going to be probably a, a number of notes that... Uh, you can take. Um, we're going to be looking at maybe just to overview a bit today as we're looking at the cross from God's perspective. We would like to see what happened on the cross from God's viewpoint. I think that will help us uh, as we sense, as we get a sense of worshiping him. Uh, four things we're going to look for in that respect of worshiping him for his righteousness, for his grace, for his consistency, and literally for his word or his law. Uh, that will be one segment, if you will, of looking at the cross from God's perspective. And then the other side that we'll get to, Lord willing, is the fact that the resurrection is what sealed the deal. We'll be looking at the completion of the salvation. What does resurrection prove? And we'll look at a number of things there as well. But as we go back to our text today in Romans chapter 3, uh, the first thing we find that from God's perspective that we see is that Christ died on the cross to reveal God's righteousness. Christ died on the cross to reveal God's righteousness. As you go through the scriptures and you see the, the, the real message that's behind it, we find a God in the scriptures that is holy, that is righteous, and that is just. And one of the questions that we must ask ourselves then is, how can I be, or how can a sinful man be right with God since God is righteous and man is a sinner? 
Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 uh, says very clearly that we have a problem. It says that by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And that's probably been an, a universal question for as long as man has been able to think after the sin. How can I be made with right? How can I be forgiven? And really... Basically, religion has been trying to answer that question uh, for decades, for centuries, almost from the beginning of time. What can I do? How can I appease God? What shall we do? Uh, thinking of Paul, even, in Acts. I'm sorry. Yeah, it would have been an Acts on his way to uh, the road to Damascus. Uh, Paul asked the question, what shall I do, as he was confronted with Jesus Christ? Uh, turning to Acts chapter 2. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you today or where you're hearing my voice, Acts chapter 2, verse 37 uh, says, when they, were, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Uh, going back, this is when Peter at the day of Pentecost, the beginning of the church, he was preaching to these people. And they said, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? We're ready to ask that question. If you remember the rich young ruler, he was wanting to know, what else do I lack? What should I do? Acts chapter 16, if you're there yet in Acts, turn to chapter 16 and verse 30. Uh, in a time of uh, tremendous tumult and uh, serious situation for this jailer who had jailed uh, those apostles. And the, the, the prison was opened in verse 26 of Acts chapter 16. There was a great earthquake in verse cha uh, chapter 16, verse 26, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all of the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. He was responsible, ultimately, for the care of those prisoners. If they would have escaped, they would have held him responsible and would have killed him. He's looking already to take that job himself. But Paul, verse 28, cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, watch carefully, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's a question that's been going on literally for thousands of years. Now, with God's uh, character of being immutable, that word uh, means to not ever change. And it respects in all of the attributes, his holiness, his righteousness, all of those things are immutable and they're consistent now one thing if we go back to romans chapter 3 let's look at verse 24 once again verse 24 tells us that it was god that took the initiative we've got this problem that god is righteous he's just but he also uh, he's revealing this on the cross and in verse 24 it says being justified freely by his grace being justified freely by his grace uh, there's a sense there of a gift. Now, how do you earn a gift? Can you, can you earn a gift? The answer is no. Uh, just as justification cannot be earned, it is viewed as a gift. It says by his grace. Grace is something that's uh, unmerited. It is a favor that cannot be earned. We can't and don't earn it. Now, the cross, in other words, actually... It didn't just give forbearance. Now, as you think about it, prior to uh, Calvary, prior to the cross, uh, you, you think about all of those sins that would have taken place. How did God deal with those? Because we're told that it was the cross that literally acted upon and gave forgiveness. But really, it would have been before that, God would have been forbearing. But it was he was looking past the sins 
to, to know that he had set in motion before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, that literally there would come a time when the payment would be made. His righteousness would not have to suffer. He wouldn't have to turn his head. He wouldn't have to overlook. He wouldn't have to lower his standards. He didn't have to tolerate it. He didn't lower the bar. He knew that that time of the cross would reveal his righteousness purely and completely because he did it through, back to verse 24, through the redemption. Now that word redemption is, is a word that uh, we maybe don't use quite as much, but it means to purchase. It means the sense of payment. Uh, probably even a better sense is have, if you've probably watched some type of a, uh, um, I don't know, a movie or a show, uh, there's always somewhere a plot uh, as you look about. Someone would capture, uh, say, a young child and would ask a ransom. They would ask, say, $200,000, and they would have this, this child or this person in captivity, and they would hold them there until they were paid the sum of money. And in this case, $200,000. And quite honestly, sin had held us captive, and God had set the price because his righteousness, his holiness, his justice was on display. So God set the price for what sin had cost and that sin was holding ransom mankind. Now, it was a high price. We think of it in dollars, but dollars couldn't buy it. In fact, you, even from the sense of sin, in, in, in a sinful condition, could not even, you couldn't even give your life to get it. In fact, those that really die without Christ, that do not accept the gift that was given to them, they will be literally in bondage, if you will, being out of God's redemptive power because they've resisted it for eternity. And anything less than eternity would not be enough. That's why it is eternity. Think of that uh, powerful exhibition, what God had done. Now, it took the life of his son. It literally took Jesus' life for the price, the ransom that needed to be paid. And as a result of that, that righteousness that's on display, his holiness, his righteousness, all of his justice, all of those things were never set aside. They were completely paid. The price was set and it was bought. It was paid for. But the other side of it is, is that not only was that taken care of, but it also allowed God's love and mercy to be satisfied as well. Just as not any one attribute is set aside, nor is his love or his mercy. Go to verse 25. Again, we'll just start in verse 24, roll ourselves. We'd be justified, that is to be made right freely. It's a gift by his grace, an unmerited favor, how through the redemption, the purchasing that is in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith. Uh, that word propitiation, another word we don't use very much of, but we've talked of it in the last number of weeks in the sense of how the Holy Spirit has been involved in that, in the sense of satisfaction. Uh, not only did holy, holiness, righteousness, and justice need to be satisfied, which they were because of the price paid by Jesus Christ, but also his love and his mercy were satisfied because he was able to have the price paid through Jesus in the sense of grace, a picture, not a picture, but a full payment of grace of which accomplished not only holiness, righteousness, and justice, but love and mercy as well. Now, nothing else could do it. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 uh, as this would be a picture of the Old Testament and God revealing what wouldn't work, if you will. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 3. You remember the sacrificial system. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. 
Every year, uh, they had to go through the same ordeal. In fact, sometimes it was week after week. Verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. There's, there's nothing that would literally, now they could atone, they could cover, if you will, but it would never take away. There would be no forgiveness through that. It couldn't, it couldn't be accomplished. I turn with me at another picture of, of even ourselves in regards to something. Go to the book of Psalm, Psalm chapter 49. Psalm chapter 49, and let's look at verses 7 and 8. Psalm chapter 49, verses 7 and 8. Watch the significance of this as well. Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8. None of them can by any means redeem, that is to purchase his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever. In other words, you, you, you certainly cannot accomplish that on your own. Again, just verifying that through that. Now, how is this appropriated, if you will? We're justified that it's to be made righteous freely, that's by a gift, by his grace, because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a satisfaction. How? Through faith in his blood. You must believe. That is the key to all of that is the fact that you must believe that what God accomplished will in fact accomplish it. So the first thing we've seen is the fact that the uh, Christ dying on the cross from God's perspective is to reveal his righteousness. It, it completely fulfills his holiness, righteousness, and justice along with satisfying his love and mercy. It brings it all together in the sense of the very God and also in the form of a man who needed to pay the penalty of death, it was God that could give the holiness and all of the things that were necessary to fulfill that very, I'm going to say that crux of pulling apart on both sides of God. It completed it completely. The second thing we find that's on display from God's perspective on the cross is the fact that it exalted God's grace. It exalted God's grace. In verse 27 of our text, chapter 3, it says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. Now, in that, in that particular uh, verse, the word law would be uh, better for you to understand in the sense of principle or method. Let me, let me try that now in verse 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what principle? Of works? No but by the principle of faith. Do you see it? it? It lays it out more clearly. There's no one that can literally boast or brag about uh, how they have believed, how they have received grace on their part. Uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 is very clear in this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved. How? Through faith. And that faith not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. There, once again, it's very clear that it's God's grace. And the cross exalts that, magnifies that, glorifies God in the sense of that, that we either receive it or we reject it. God's grace is unmerited, it's undeserved, and it is exalted, and only he can boast. Uh, verse 28, back to our text, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith, without the deeds of the law. Now, if you've noticed, in fact, well, before we say any more, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10 says this, But by the grace of God, I am 
what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Again, just showing that grace and grace alone is literally what we have to be basing our salvation in. Uh, you'll go back to our text and we'll find it's all about faith, faith, faith. Look at verse 24. We're justified freely by his grace. You find that grace is underlying with the sense of faith. Verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a perpetuation. How? Through faith. Verse 26, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Verse 27, where is boasting then? but by the law of faith. Verse 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith. And you see the importance of faith. It's just, it's just literally uh, just saturated in this passage of Scripture that it's about faith. Now let's, let's take that apart for a moment. I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And Paul, in this uh, letter to the Corinthians, his second one, uh, is, is asking them to examine their self, themselves. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 says this, Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Now that's interesting. How do we know then that our faith is real? That's a question that, again, is of extreme importance. Is my faith real? Is it saving faith? Is it faith that is talked about in Romans chapter 3, verses, essentially that passage from verse 21 all the way through verse 31? Is it the right kind of faith? Well, I'd like to start and we'll have a, a list of uh, things that don't prove anything about faith. And you say, well, why are we going to do that? Because these, quite honestly, are things that people from the outside externally would say, he must, or he or she must be a Christian because of this. We're going to list about seven things, uh, plus or minus, I'm not even sure, uh, at this point, but things that really don't prove anything about faith. You can't take these to the bank, if you will. Well, first of all, is the one called uh, visible morality. These are good people. They're honest. They're forthright. They're kind towards others. They're honest. They're just good people. But in the sense of loving and serving God, they know none of that. They're like the rich rung ruler, as we talked about already. He is asking all of these things, uh, the Ten Commandments, he was asked to, and he, he said he'd kept those. But I know I lack something else. What is it that I lack? That would be literally a visible morality. Those on the outside that would look to be very good, honest people. But really, quite honestly, does not prove that they have saving faith. Uh, their act has been cleaned up, if you will, by reformation and not by regeneration. By reformation and not regeneration. Well, that's one thing that doesn't prove anything about saving faith. The second one is intellectual knowledge. Now, you may come across someone that knows a lot about God. They know a lot about Jesus. And they know a lot about the cross. They know they rose again. But they still have turned their back on Christ. They haven't accepted what he's done. He may, they may have knowledge to be saved, but knowledge doesn't save you necessarily. I even think of the demons. They know and they tremble. They know and they tremble. Well, we've talked at intellectual knowledge. And an outward or an external morality does not necessarily give us the sense of saving faith. There's a third one, and that's uh, religious involvement. And you know uh, probably a lot of people this way. They're involved in a lot of activities. They're involved with churches. They're involved in religion in a, in a magnanimous way. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. 
And, and this letter to Timothy's last one that Paul had actually written gives us a description of this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. That would be a pretty good idea of what's going on in the sense of they have a form, but they're powerless. There's an empty kind of religion. Uh, Jesus spoke of a, a parable back in Matthew chapter 25 with the, uh, the ten virgins. Turn with me there for a moment, and you can tell that even though they're described as that there's ten virgins, there's half of them, five that were not wise, they were foolish, it's described. And Matthew chapter 25, verse 1, uh, goes this way. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels within their lamps, while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. At midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go you out to meet him. Now, I would say, there's, without getting too far into this passage, there was a couple of things that happened at a Jewish wedding. One was that the, that the bridegroom would go to the home of the bride, his, the, her parents, and he would receive her, and then he would go to the banqueting hall to those that would be waiting for him. And that's what these uh, virgins, these ten are waiting for, is for them to arrive at this place. And at midnight, it says, at an unexpected time, quite honestly, there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go out to meet him. Verse 7. Then all of those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Lest there be not enough for us and you, but go you rather to them that sell by for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they were ready, went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterwards came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily or truly I say unto you, I do not know you, I know you not. Watch, therefore, you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Now, it's interesting, the thing that they lacked was oil. And if you find all through Scripture that oil is a symbol, has a symbolistic sense of the Holy Spirit. Quite honestly, I'm sure that those five were not saved in the passage of Scripture here. It, they did not have the Holy Spirit, which would tell us that they don't have life eternal. They were not saved. They did not have saving faith. They looked religious. They looked like had all of the equipment, and yet they didn't have the thing that really they needed from the within themselves. So to review just again, the fact that we have the things that don't prove anything about faith is you may have visible morality, outward, external morality. You may have intellectual knowledge. You may uh, be involved religiously. Uh, and fourthly, you could have an active ministry, quite honestly. Um, if you remember that prophet Balaam, do you remember him from the Old Testament? He was very active. He was called a prophet. Think of, think of Saul of Tarsus. What do you know about him? Very, very vehemently active. He was as active as anyone could be, but he was on the wrong journey. He was on the wrong road, as we know. In fact, Jesus called him up short. Think of, think of an apostle that was described as an apostle, and yet he wasn't at all tuned in to the grace of God. Who was that? Judas Iscariot. Uh, so just to be active, to be part of a ministry, does not mean there's saving grace. I think of Judas for a moment, and really quite honestly, well, actually I'll save that for just a moment. The, another way that we know that we can't trust to know of, of saving faith is just that conviction of sin. Lots of people feel bad about sin. Uh, just one in particular, Judas Iscariot. Uh, are, they're guilt-ridden to the core. 
And, uh, but today we're even going beyond that, the sense of we're exchanging that for self-love, for self-fulfillment, for self-esteem, ultimately not being responsible. You find that today everyone is entitled to, quote, happiness and wealth and whatever it takes to be happy. Um, and so we've even went beyond the sense of conviction of sin, feeling bad about it, but that doesn't mean anything, quite honestly. It's somebody else's fault we've moved to that particular situation. Um, I would also say this. Uh, let's go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 and something we spoke of just a little bit ago. Um, it's amazing. Uh, it probably would have been better under uh, understanding or knowledge. Uh, James chapter 2 verse 19. Thou believest or knowest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils, the demons also believe and tremble. And obviously we know that they're not saved. They, they know, but they haven't responded and couldn't respond because they had one chance. That's one of the things that uh, salvation or the cross from an angel's perspective uh, is, is it's quite mysterious to them. They got one, one chance to get it right. One chance. They blew it. Those were called demons. They either got a right of the angels, and to see the angels who are servants of the living God, and to see that God allows this grace to be manifested to these losers called humans, time after time after time after time, is crazy. They, they can't even understand that. But from God's perspective, it fulfills everything that he had laid out. Well, another one, uh, a, uh, something that cannot be trusted in saving faith, is assurance. Insurance. Some people may say, well, I must be a Christian. I feel like one. I look like one. I think I am. Is that good enough? Well, it takes a lot more to think you are a Christian because if you could, then you could just think your way to being a Christian. Huh. That won't work. So assurance being on from the self-inflicted uh, certainly will not prove a saving faith. Uh, some would go back to a time of decision. Uh, well, I signed a card. I went forward. I, I reacted to something that was many, many years ago, so therefore I must be saved. Well, not necessarily. Could be, but not necessarily. So we've listed seven things that, quite honestly, you can't gauge a saving faith that is described for us in Romans chapter 3. Um, but so your question may be, so what does prove? How do we know that we have faith? Okay, so this is another list uh, do you guys want me to repeat those last seven, or you got them? Yes. Okay, let's do it one more time then. Uh, th this would be ways for us not to be able to prove anything about faith. One was visible morality. That's an external morality. That's based mo mostly on act of cleaning up your act by reformation and not regeneration. You cannot be regenerated by yourself. It can't, can't happen. The second one was intellectual knowledge. Now, that you know a lot about it, but you haven't acted on it. Thirdly, there is religious involvement. You're doing a lot of things, but there's no power. It's empty. And we talked about the ten virgins. And the fourth is an active ministry. Literally be involved actively in ministry. I think of Paul particularly. Paul, I'm sorry, his name was Saul then. He was persecuting Christians. He was blowing, he was blowing and going, trying to destroy everything that Jesus and the Christians were doing. But it was not a saving faith. Uh, and fifthly is just literally the convic conviction of sin. In other words, you're guilt-ridden, but you don't have it. you're not reacting to that. And now we've uh, psychology has really taken us to the level of it, oh, don't feel bad about sin. No, no, you shouldn't even talk about sin. In fact, let me let me introduce you to self-awareness and self-fulfillment and self-esteem and all of the things that you're really not responsible for. In fact, if you're acting and you're being guilt-ridden, it's probably someone else's fault. So it it really won't help you either. And then the sense of a false assurance that 
people are saying, uh, I must be a Christian because I feel like one, I look like one, I think I am one. And the last was just a time in the past, a time of decision of which you're basing your salvation on just something that happened some time ago. And it doesn't mean that you can't, but you can't make a decision based on it. So, did, those, did you catch those? Okay, now, as we go to the next uh, course of ways to describe or to prove saving faith, we'll start off with Romans chapter 8. Um, Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Because the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, is enmity or at, at war against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So you see quite on, in verse 8 it even says, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. One of the things that will happen if you have a saving grace is the fact that you will have a love for God. You will have a love for God. A love for God. The non-Christian really resents God. He rebels against God. And so one of the questions we might ask, uh, do we love God or do we see him as a means to making us happy? Do you reach out and you have God in a box and you want to open it up and you want to use him to acquire your means of being happy or fulfilled from your perspective? Do you love his will or do you love yours? A Christian that's truly saved, that truly has a faith, as described and has been justified in Romans chapter 3, is one that loves God. If you do not love God, then it's a very strong possibility that you do not know him. You are not saved with a saving faith. The second thing is, is the fact that if you love someone, in this case, if you love God, you will also hate sin. Um, it would be like t for me to say, I love my wife, but I could care less what happens to her. Now, what would you say about that? You would probably doubt my love. Correct? And that's exactly. If we say we love God, but we could care less about sin in our lives, that doesn't add up. And so we must have a sense of repentance of sin. We must hate sin. Just as sin offends God, the one we love, it curses God. It actually, sin killed his son. It literally killed Jesus Christ. So true love is seeking the highest or the best for the one we love. And in this case, we will love God if we have a saving faith and we will hate sin. Now, true repentance actually also includes confession. It's turning from sin. Does my sin grieve me more than the sins of others? And that's an interesting thing. A lot of times when we're out of fellowship with God, I think of David right now. I was just thinking of David. And, uh, and David was... Uh, if you remember when he sinned against Bathsheba and he committed murder with Uriah, her husband, and it was just, I mean, one step after another. And do you know what? He was more critical of sin in other people's lives. Do you remember that? When, when Nathan came to him and he unfolded this story that there, was a, that, that there was this poor man and he had a single lamb and someone took that lamb. David was incensed by just a sheep being taken from a, from a man. He, he, he went crazy. And then Nathan said, well, you're that man. And we'll find oftentimes when we don't take our sin more serious than we take the sins of others, then we probably don't hate sin as much as we would say that we do. Now, again, one thing I'm going to continue to say, if you take this and you say, well, I'm, I probably don't love God enough. I probably don't hate sin enough. And we'll go through these others. That, that's okay. But think of this. You're moving in the direction towards God. You're moving in the direction of where saving faith is taking you. And now, just reviewing for a second of what we've been doing the last number of weeks, the Holy Spirit is responsible for the two S's, primarily, and not to say that it's, 
it's just bound there. But the two things I, I want you to really get a grip on, because these are the two areas that, quite honestly, we fail to recognize and fail to utilize in our lives today, and that's sanctification and it's security. Those are the two things that Christians today probably struggle with the most, is sanctification. That's growing us up. That's taking us and moving us in a, in a, in a direction of which literally honors and glorifies God, and then knowing that we are secure because of the seal that was placed upon us. All of these things literally, again, shows the importance of the Holy Spirit we've been talking a lot about. So, first of all, we find that saving faith will have us loving God, it will have us hating sin, and it will give us a genuine humility. A genuine humility. Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 4. Matthew 18, 4. It talks about uh, childlike faith. And Jesus, oh, we'll start in verse 1 actually. Chapter 18 of Matthew, verse 1 goes this way. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's a great question. Jesus called a little child on him and set him in the midst of them. And he said, truly, I'm sorry, verily or truly I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You think about a child and their, their, their trust, their openness, their eagerness to learn. All of those things would describe for us a genuine humility. And that is one of the things that will come as from saving faith. Turn with me to Luke chapter 15, and let's look at the response of this prodigal son who literally, going through difficult times, found Jesus. I'm sorry, the prodigal son finding, the, finding his father, but for us as well, finding our father. In Luke chapter 15 and verse 21 of Luke. Luke chapter 15 and verse, maybe we'll just start here in verse 17. Watch, watch this now. You, you know enough about this story that he'd wasted his, his uh, inheritance with riotous living. And then in verse 17, it says, when he, when he came to himself and said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and despair, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Watch, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. That's humility. That's genuine humility. There's no pride, no ego, nothing that would be something to boast about. And you remember the terms that Paul used back in Romans chapter 3 as we've been unfolding this revealing of God's righteousness. Now, the other thing that we'll find in a savings faith, saving faith is the fact that we're devoted to God's glory. We'll do what we do because we want to glorify God. Now, we'll fail in all of these things. Again, I want to say it clearly, but our direction of our life is in loving Him, hating sin, being and growing in humility, and being devoted to the glory of God. In other words, the things that you do, you don't take them to yourself to, to magnify yourself. You're literally interested in what I'm doing. I want to bring glory to my Father because he, paid the, he had the price paid at Jesus Christ. He satisfied all of the things that I lacked, and now I am his. A devotion to God's glory. That's a saving faith 
description. The other thing you'll find also, someone that has a saving faith, is the sense that they will be engaged in what I would call continual prayer. And you say, 24-7? I'll tell you, your life is just saturated with wanting to spend time with God. You want to be in communion with Him. And that's not uh, speaking out loud, but, but you remember back in Romans chapter 8, we studied this a few weeks ago, in the sense of our position when we're... Uh, uh, children of God or co-heirs with Jesus Christ, literally, we have the ability, the opportunity, the, the, uh, the gift, the possession of saying, Abba, Father, to, to literally, Daddy, listen to me now. I need you. Yeah, there's an intimacy that comes through a saving faith, a continual looking to him, to commune with him, to get our wills aligned with his. So let's go back and review for just a second. So a saving faith would be one that loves God, number one, uh, hates sin, number two, has a genuine humility, number three, a devotion to God's glory, number four, and continual prayer, just wanting to talk to him all of the time. And literally that's, I think of even, do you remember in the little book of Nehemiah? And, and he was a cupbearer. And in the presence of the Jews were coming and saying the state of affairs was terrible. And he prayed within himself. He wanted to be able to respond to the king because he looked troubled. And it was just, it was just a matter of he was constantly wanting to be in communion. Well, number six is a selfless love. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, uh, the, the book that the, the disciple John wrote. Um, let's see where we want to go here. 1 John chapter 3. Uh, verse 1, we'll just do that. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we, should, we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And that's literally part of that in the saving faith, is we have compassion, the, the, the love that comes within of us. We love our brothers. We love those that are around us. There's a sense of selflessness. We even see that today as we have this coronavirus. We have this thing that continues to to plague our nation that is pulling us down, and it's Christians and the selfless love. They will know uh, that we are Christians by our love in John chapter 13. Another thing that we know of a saving faith is there's a separation from the world. Today, the world, and speaking of the coronavirus, we think of where the security is, and there are people uh, that have lost a tremendous amount of money in a 401k, or they may have lost all of their business. They may have lost all of their well-being. They may have lost position. They may have lost relationship. They may have lost all of those things that literally the world thrives on in the sense of getting the security. Uh, the ones that's in saving faith know that their security literally is in the Lord. It is in Jesus Christ. And therefore, there's a sense of separation. We want to do all of those things that would separate us from the world. We want to do them more. Uh, Another one we have is that we want to be more and more like Christ. You'll find yourself growing. You turn around and look back, and you may not grow too much too fast, but you can turn around and look back, and you can say, you know what? This year, compared to three years ago or two years ago, I'm stronger. I'm stronger, I'm growing because of what God has done within me. I'll turn with me to Philippians. There's a promise here. Philippians chapter 1, verse 16. I'm sorry, verse, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 6. Oh, I'll get it right yet. Uh, chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 6. You can be confident, you can know this, in verse 6, of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You will be coming more and more like Jesus Christ. He is conforming you to his image. You will be able to, other people may tell you that you're growing. 
more like him. And that would, again, give evidence to a saving faith. The last one we'll have is obedience. Do you, do you obey what you know to be true? As you read the scriptures and you unfold it and, you're, and something convicts you of, I need to be doing that. Now think of John chapter 15. If you obey him, you will bear fruit. Bear fruit. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go back to verse 10. We just went to it a little bit ago in a sense of faith and grace. But let's look at the real reason that you're saved. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 reveals for us, starting in verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For, watch now, for we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And when we obey him, and we have a sense of obedience, then literally that saving faith is exhibited. So once again, uh, those uh, things that would give evidence to a saving faith is we love God. We hate sin. We have a genuine humility. We are devoted to God's glory. We are in continual prayer. We have a selfless love. We are separated from the world. We're becoming more and more like Christ. And we have a sense of obedience to our Father. Now, all of those things, all of those things that, we're just, that, we're, that we just described there, literally, the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. If you've trusted Christ, you have a saving faith, the Holy Spirit lives within you. We've been talking about this for a number of weeks. And he is the one that is literally giving you the power to be sanctified, to engage in these things and giving us direction to become more and more like him. All right, how are you doing? We've covered a lot of stuff. Now, the good part is, is uh, we're not very far along yet, but that's okay, right? You're going to be okay. So we're coming back now to remember, remember, if you remember, I want you to tell me, what was the, the beginning of what we were laying out from God's perspective in regards to the cross? And remember, number one was what? Does anybody remember? What was on display? Um, going back now, uh, what was God, from his perspective, what did the cross do? What did he see from his side of the cross? From God was to reveal his righteousness. You guys got that down? To reveal his righteousness. Secondly, it was to what? Exalt his grace. The cross was exalting God's grace. Now, the third one that we're going to come to right now is the sense of God's consistency. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 3 because it does seem a little bit strange in how God was working uh, prior to the cross. So let's go back to verse 29. Now, Romans chapter 3, verse 29. It's, it's asking this question, Paul is, is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. What, what is he saying here? Well, remember the Jews, how did they live? They lived by the law. They lived by the law. So does God accept the Jews? Does he justify them by the law? Because that was the system he gave them. And now it says that the Gentiles are justified by faith. So is it, does he have two methods? Is there two ways? The Jews are this way and the Gentiles are this way? And he's saying, no, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, everyone is justified through faith. I'll read verse 30. We'll start there. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith, that's the Jews, and the uncircumcision through faith, the Gentiles. If you remember, uh, think back to Noah. What was it was said about Noah? He found grace in the eyes of God. Correct? Same deal. He, didn't, he wasn't a special guy, but Moses found favor. He found grace in the eyes of God. And then uh, in Romans chapter 4, you should be just uh, probably on the same page, Romans chapter 4, verse 3, I look at Abraham for a minute. What saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for 
righteousness. Now, there's a couple things that we need to know about Abraham. Number one, he believed God before he was circumcised. That was an after effect. That was something that uh, was a, a, not only a condition, it was a display uh, that God said, for you, I want you to be a special people. But before any of that took place, before those rites of circumcision, literally, Abraham believed God. He believed him, and it was counted to him for righteousness. The other thing we know is the fact that Abraham was before the law. He was before the law, and it says that it was counted to him as righteousness. So these Old Testament saints, literally, did they know about Jesus? No, they didn't. They didn't know about Jesus. They knew that he had spoken of the fact, God did, uh, that there would be a redeemer. In fact, in, all the way back into Genesis, it was declared before Adam and Eve that there would be a redeemer, someone that would come from her, from her seed, from her line. And so the re- Old Testament responded, even those prior to the law, before circumcision, they believed what God had revealed. He was very consistent, ultimately. The law was there to show us his perfect, holy righteousness. Now, so God's consistency, the cross showed. It was still through faith in the cross, faith in grace that would save us. It's not one or the other or two separate ones. It's truly consistency. From God's perspective, the cross proved his consistency. The last one, number four, is the fact that it confirms God's law. What was the law for? Was it useless now as far as uh, what had taken place? In fact, let's go to verse 31 of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, our last verse here in this text says, Do we then make void the law through faith? And Is the law worthless now that we're accepting grace through faith? And it says, God forbid. No, not ever. We establish the law. The, the cross literally shows how serious God is about his law, and it even took the life of his son to satisfy the demands of the law. We go back to the fact that there was a price paid. He had set it. But its purpose was what? What was the law's purpose? The purpose was to show us sin. Galatians talks about that it was our schoolmaster. It was a thing that literally showed us we could not compete in a world of holiness and righteousness because of the sin that literally was indwelling us. And its fulfillment is not in the terms of demand for life, or its, fifth, it, it is, its fulfill, fulfillment is in the terms of demand for life. It, it demanded the law. It demanded the life of Jesus Christ. It demanded that it took everything that God had set up to make it satisfactory. And it was made possible through the cross. So now you see in the cross, you see his justice, you see his grace, you see his consistency, and you see his law. All for God's glory. By grace alone, by faith alone, for God's glory alone. That's literally the perspective of the cross from God's perspective. Now, if it had stopped there, if we would just see it from the cross side, and we still see Jesus hanging on a cross, it wouldn't be enough. It would not be enough. In fact, some places you may see a cross hanging on a wall that it has Jesus Christ on it. To me, that's just half the story. Because if that's where it ended, we would have no future. There would be nothing that we literally could still depend on. So what I'd like to do now for the remainder of our time is to look at the resurrection. The resurrection, that's why we're here today, ultimately. As we think about Easter Sunday, we think of Resurrection Day, which I like to call it. uh, That's the way I like to call it. But literally, that was the part that sealed the deal. The resurrection sealed the deal. Without the resurrection, there's a whole lot of things that we couldn't count on today. 
In fact, uh, if you want to, if there's someone that you want to share the gospel with, I'll tell you there's nothing more succinct than 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll read verses 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. It goes this way. This is probably the most condensed form of the gospel that I know of. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. How that, one, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That succinctly puts into, into perspective every needed aspect of what the salvation was all about. And I'd like to go, now we're going to have a list of things that would, that there's a sense of the completion of what started on the cross, that sense of salvation, but the completion of which resurrection literally sealed the deal. Now, we spent some time here in the past on uh, Resurrection Sundays of proving that the resurrection happens. We prove the resurrection. But today I want to look at it from the standpoint of what does the resurrection prove? What is it that the resurrection proves? Uh, number one is the fact that resurrection proves or is bestowing upon us eternal life. If there would have been no resurrection, then you could have had no eternal life. Turn, I don't know where I've left you, probably 1 Corinthians. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. A very powerful verse. Romans 4, 25, it says, Who was delivered, this is speaking of Jesus, in fact, verse 24, let's start there. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, that is to put on our account, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. You see, if he hadn't risen from the dead, then we really literally would not have been justified. It would have, and it was dependent upon resurrection. So no resurrection, no justification. Uh, even though the cross was, it met that demand, but the fact if Jesus would have laid in state, if he would have continued to stay there, if you could go to his grave today and you could have a great celebration, a commemoration, and you could view his, his tomb, his bones, his body, whatever there, whatever's there, if you could view that, it's over. I wouldn't be here today. There would be no future. There would be no ultimate justification because it wouldn't have been enough. That sacrifice that he offered would not have been sufficient. Because the scripture speaks of, I mean, I'm talking all the way back in the Old Testament. It talks about the fact that there would be a Messiah that would die and would live. It would also mean that the Bible would not be true if the resurrection hadn't taken place. So it's vital that the resurrection would seal the deal through the sense of bestowing upon us eternal life. If he had not risen, there would be no eternal life. There would be ultimately no justification. In fact, John chapter 11, he was visiting with... Um, I think Mary and Martha in that passage, uh, John chapter 11, verse 25. I'll read that to you if you'd like to go. John 11, verse 25. He makes a statement that, again, if he had not risen, would have made no sense. Martha uh, was responding to him after he had, uh, he had said very pointedly in verse 23, this would be Lazarus. He said, thy brother shall rise again. Martha said unto him, I know he shall rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said unto her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. See, that if that hadn't happened, if there's no resurrection, ultimately there would be no life. There'd be no eternal life. So the first thing in the sense of the resurrection sealing the deal is eternal life. The second thing we find in the sense of the resurrection sealing the deal is the fact that it brought the Holy Spirit. Now, if Jesus Christ had not been resurrected, if he was still lying in state, guess what would not have happened? You would not have the Holy Spirit living 
within you today. It could not have happened. In fact, turn with me to John chapter 16. I don't know if I still have you back there. John chapter 16. Look at verse 7. Jesus is describing to his disciples what the plan was going to be. And he speaks a lot of things, and I'm just dialing in here. Verse 7, it says, chapter 16 of John, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient or best for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. If he would have never, if he would have better, never been resurrected, we would not have the Holy Spirit. We would not have... You know, think about that for a second. All of the things that we enjoy in the sense of the power through him, none of that would have happened. If he didn't rise, the Holy Spirit couldn't descend. No resurrection, no ascension, no Holy Spirit. Resurrection sealed the deal on the giving of the Holy Spirit. Number three, there would have been no forgiveness of sins. Literally, uh, it would not have been good enough. The Father would not have been pleased with the sacrifice if he had not raised him from the dead. He had risen to literally prove the forgiveness of sins. It would have not been successful. There would have been no atonement, no forgiveness. It wouldn't have been complete. So the resurrection, the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead, literally sealed the deal and for forgiveness of sins. Number one was eternal life. Number two was the coming of the Holy Spirit. Number three was the forgiving of sins. And number four is the sense of intercession. If he had not risen in order that he could be at the right hand of God, then he wouldn't be interceding for us. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And let's look at his description of what Jesus Christ is doing right now, even on this day. And we'll continue. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation. You see that word again? He's the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's acting on our behalf. He's our defense attorney. If he had not risen, he would not have been at the right hand of God. He's not at the right hand of God. No advocate. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. And we get a sense here of, of how powerful that Jesus Christ is. Watch carefully. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. This is a verse that you need to have in your repertoire and understanding it fully. Wherefore, he is able also, speaking of Jesus Christ, has been described as our high priest, also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. None of that would have happened if he had not been risen from the dead. His ongoing intercession is another way that the resurrection sealed the deal of complete salvation. And number five, we find, in fact, if the resurrection had not happened, there would have been no giving of spiritual gifts. And you say, well, that's true because the Holy Spirit wouldn't have come. That's correct. But you also would not have received any gifts to which to serve or to honor to glorify God. Uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And let's look at verses 7 and 8. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Watch this now. If you're here and you have a saving faith, and we've already went through how to describe what would be effective and, and uh, open in the sense of a saving faith, look at verse 7. You also have this. But unto every one of us, those that are a saving faith, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led the captivity captive, gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first in the lower parts of the earth? In other words, as Jesus Christ once lived in the heavenlies, he came as the Son of Man, as a human, on, and descended to the earth. 
to do what needed to be done, and he gave some, verse 11, apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. How or why? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. All of those things, those gifts that he's used to literally synchronize the body, to bring them together, to glorify God in unison, would not have happened if he had not been resurrected. No rising, no ascension, no gifts. We come to the sixth one, and that is the resurrection is granting us power. And that we've worked on, actually, for a number of weeks in the Holy Spirit that we really don't access the power of the Holy Spirit. Turn with you to Matthew chapter 28. These are words that Jesus would have responded to after his resurrection, and he's giving direction and um, counsel to his disciples. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and spoke unto them, those would be the apostles, and said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go you, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And as he went back, <coughs> excuse me, as we go, let's go to Acts chapter 1, because the power that he had literally was was petitioned to them through the Holy Spirit, which we find in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Watch this. as he's, he's conditioning them for what would unfold very quickly. He's about to leave them. And watch this now in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. These are his words and commissioning those that he's leaving behind his disciples. He says in verse 8, chapter 1, But you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the world. Without the resurrection, there would have been no spiritual power. In fact, turn with me, it's even more uh, magnanimous as you go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and let's look at a passage of scripture that has become uh, much more fulfilled in the sense of its mag magnanimity, as it's just powerful in the size and the scope of the power that is, is ours through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 16. This is part of a prayer that he's bowing. We'll start in verse 14 even. This is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Watch now. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's praying. This is part of that uh, Paul that wants the best for those that he loves and that God has laid out. Uh, verse 15, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might. How? By his spirit in the inner man. That's where the spirit is working. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and height. If you think about God's love, it's four-dimensional. And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, and that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Think of that. And now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power, again, that worketh within us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. If we wouldn't have had a resurrection, we would certainly not have spiritual power. Oh, while you're there in Ephesians, just stay there for a moment. I'll turn back. Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20. Uh, this is another powerful, powerful verses here. It says, and what is the exceeding, chapter 1, verse 19 of Ephesians, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, 
which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Again, you see no resurrection, no Holy Spirit, no power. The seventh one we find is the resurrection gives us a new position of blessing. If you're in Ephesians, just stay there for a moment. There's a couple more that we'd like to see this as the fact that there is eternal blessing. Eternal blessing is a result of the resurrection. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. We can't even imagine yet of what has been accomplished for us as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ which proved that he was worthy and it was satisfactory, his, his sacrifice. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, we've looked at a number of verses there. Look at verse 7. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. That in the ages to come, this is out in the future, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward whom? Toward us, through Christ Jesus. Our future blessing, our future, an eternal sense of future, has, it's all based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That that proving the salvation of God is complete. Resurrection put the seal. It sealed the deal. Uh, no resurrection, no church, no body, no future. Resurrection solved all of that. It made that all reality. Now, ultimately, our the, I'm sorry. Ultimately, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what gives us victory. It's what gives us victory. First Corinthians chapter 15. Turn there, and we're about to close down. First Corinthians chapter 15, and let's look at verses. 55 through 58. We'll review these uh, resurrection uh, aspects of sealing a deal. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's look at verses 55 through 58. It goes this way. O death, where is thy sting? That's the thing that's really conquering us. Today, what are most people, what are they the most concerned about in the world today that are really not Christians and are not trusted Christ, do not have a saving faith? What are they most worried about? Death. Why do you think we're completely, uh, that a non-Christian is completely wiped out in the sense of the coronavirus? They're afraid of what? Dying. They're afraid of dying. So, and up, to, up until the point that Jesus Christ literally died, he took the payment on the cross, that was something to fear. Satan used that as a, as a tool, as a weapon. But watch, because of the resurrection, that has been taken away. It says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's why as a Christian you could be actively engaged, knowing that ultimately your victory is, is, is uh, complete within the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if there's ever a time right now for us to be... Uh, resilient, to be strong, to be steadfast in the face of some very tumultuous and uncertain times, it would be now because the resurrection sealed the deal. Um, again, I'd like to, uh, to review just one more time. Um, how did it do that? Well, it, it sealed the deal by giving us eternal life. No resurrection, no justification, no glorification. A second thing that we found today is the fact that without the resurrection, the coming of the Spirit would not have happened. No resurrection, no ascension, no Holy Spirit. Number three, we found that there was uh, the resurrection sealed the fact of forgiveness of sins. It proved that the Father was pleased with the Son's sacrifice. No atonement, or if that wouldn't have been successful, there would have been no, resurre no resurrection, no atonement, no forgiveness. There was also, with the resurrection, would 
has, has solidified the fact that we have ongoing intercession from Jesus Christ. He's sitting at the right hand of God. No resurrection, no advocate. Number five was uh, resurrection is, is crucial to the giving of, holy, of, the holy, of the gifts. I'm sorry, the spiritual gifts. If there was no resurrection, be no ascension, there would be no gifts. The sixth one was that resurrection granted us spiritual power. No resurrection, no Holy Spirit, no power. And number seven was the fact that it get, has given us eternal blessing and a future. And then the last one, I'm going to ask if you remember that one, the resurrection ultimately, ultimately, and you can put a big circle around all of us, ultimately gives us what? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 through 58 declare that he ultimately gives us victory. That's why we sing that song, Victory in Jesus. It literally, the proof was in the resurrection. In the resurrection. So we went over a lot of stuff today, but we looked at the cross from God's perspective. We've looked at the resurrection and how it seals the deal. We looked at, I guess I would say, things that don't necessarily prove saving faith. We looked at those that did. We Let's maybe just review those once again. Um, in the sense of conditions or things that would prove that we have a saving faith, the first was we love God. Secondarily is the fact we hate sin. Thirdly, we have a genuine humility. We are devoted to God's glory. We are in continual prayer when we communicate with our Father. We have a selfless love, as John described. We have a separation from the world. We're becoming more like Christ, and we're actively obeying him. All of those things are wrapped up in our relationship with the Holy Spirit. As we yield to him, these be, our direction becomes faster and more fervent. And what a blessing we have today to know that all of this is wrapped up in the resurrection of which we come to celebrate today of Jesus Christ. And with that, let us just close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the fact that we can, in a very a crazy and messed up world, uh, the silliness has gone beyond uh, the scope of reality. And yet, Father, you are fully in control. The Holy Spirit is here living within us. That's those that have trusted Christ as Savior. We would ask, Father, if anyone within the uh, uh, hearing of these words or my voice today, that they would today, if they've not trusted Christ, that they would bow their knee, that they would bow their hearts and reach out to you, Father, for the gift that you completely, solely, by yourself initiated, the gift of Jesus Christ, that he died on Calvary's tree. He activated the gift that you gave to pay the price, the ransom of which held us in captivity. That was sin. Only that can be canceled by the gift of Jesus Christ that died. And when we would accept that by faith, then we are a brand new creature. We are regenerated and not just reformed. Father, anyone that's done that just in these moments, then the Holy Spirit has moved and is indwelling them right now. We would ask as that journey begins, that new walk, Father, you would instill with them the power of the Holy Spirit because the resurrection took place. The Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit is giving power. He is giving gifts. He is allowing us to be more and more like your son. Father, we thank you for what you're going to do for the remainder of this day. And we ask for your blessings upon those that are listening, that you would, that you would prepare them for the coming days. Allow us to be exactly what you want us to be in a world that needs to know more about Jesus every single minute. Thank you now in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.